All right, good morning. Uh, as John has already stated, uh, my name is Jordan Washington. Uh, I am one of the Timothys here, along with Blake uh, Reap. Uh, he will be finishing uh, seminary in the next, what is it, seven, seven months. Uh, so he will be the first, yeah, that, that is applause worthy, actually. Uh, he'll be the first uh, Timothy to uh, complete the program here uh, at, at Central Hope, and so we're very excited for, uh, for Blake and all his uh, hard work that he has also devoted uh, to the church and to becoming an ordained pastor in, in our denomination. And so today we are going to begin our Advent series, Light into Darkness. And so before we begin, uh, let's talk about what Advent is, right? And so Advent, by definition, is the anticipated arrival of something or someone important. More specifically, for us as believers, it is the preparation for and celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, in the midst of the celebrations, the gifts, the family, the presence, the time is short-lived and the hardships of life are thrust upon us once again. In some cases, this time of the year is the hardship itself. And so there is one reality that all people can agree upon. Even in our polarized society, there is one thing that even Democrats and Republicans can nod their heads in agreement upon. One undisputed truth that believers and unbelievers can affirm. One undeniable reality that the young and the seasoned know well. It is this. Life is full of suffering. The human experience from beginning to end has troubled days, trials that cause us to weep, suffering that leads us to despair, hardship that causes us to lose hope. And this morning, we're going to talk about how Jesus brings hope. This is a, a proven truth. And Jesus brings hope to us in two very needed areas. The first being that Jesus brings hope in life's sufferings. And second, Jesus brings hope in the life to come. And so to help us grapple with this, we're going to look at a man in the Old Testament well acquainted with the hardship of life, a man who experienced a great bit of suffering, and that man is Job. And so we will see in our passage deep wrestling with the reality that life can just be hard sometimes. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Job chapter 14, and we will begin in verse 1. And so I'm going to pray for our time. And then we're going to dive in. Grace and Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for the season that we are entering, Advent season. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be convicted in areas where we need conviction, that our mind's attention in the midst of all the things that we have going on during this season would still be focused upon you, the reason for the season. Lord, we pray that we would have deep reflections this year upon the greatest gift that we can ever receive. Not a new car, not a new house, not a gift underneath our tree from Santa, but the gift of your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray that as we dive into your word, uh, that you speak to us through the life of Job, through the wisdom that you have written down for us. 
We ask and we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So beginning in Job 14, verse 1. A man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet as a scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake, and a river wastes away and drives up, so a man lies down and rises not again, till the heavens are no more, he will not awake, or be roused from his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands, for then you would number my steps and you would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over all my iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. And so to understand appropriately, this, this section of poetry. And so before we begin, Job is a particularly difficult book to, to understand, uh, but it can be pretty concisely summarized as a prologue, vast dialogue, and epilogue, right? So the prologue being chapters one and two, uh, give us a picture, and we'll talk about that here uh, a little bit in a second, of, of what is happening. But the bulk of the book of Job is a very extended dialogue between Job and his friends. And it actually falls under the literary genre of poetry. And so this is why when we're reading uh, Job and oftentimes reading this conversation with Job, it can be a little bit uh, confusing because I'm sure most of you do not uh, spend your Thanksgiving dinners communicating with each other in Shakespearean English. But this is where we find ourselves in the book of Job. Uh, it is mostly poetry and it's mostly dialogue between Job and his three companions. And so we're going to look at the overall structure of, of this book so that we can have a pretty clear understanding of where we are in chapter 14. And so we see in Job chapters 1 and 2 that the sons of God gather, which is actually a reference to angels. Then we also see that Satan comes as well to this meeting. Job is described as a blameless and upright man, one who feared God and turned away from evil. We see that Job has been blessed by God with great wealth and a great family. We know that Job is not an Israelite because he's from the land of Uz, yet he clearly worships the God of Israel and offers sacrifices on behalf of his children. Then we see that Satan is allowed to test Job. 
And thus Satan goes and strikes all of Job's possessions, including his children. And so messenger after messenger came to Job, telling him of the various calamities that had befallen him. The oxen that he had, the sheep and the camels are all either destroyed by fire or stolen by bandits. Job's servants are all slain at, at the hands of these various thieves, and a natural disaster befalls the eldest son's home, the house collapses, and all of Job's children are killed. And this all happens rather rapidly. So again, just to get, get a picture of where Job is at, could you imagine getting one phone call after another about bad news that had happened to you or your family? One moment, you lose your job. The next moment, you lose your wife. The next moment, your house is being taken from you. The next moment, your children have died in a tragic car accident. This is where Job finds himself in the beginning of this book. Naturally, Job is devastated. And so in response, he tears his clothes, but then he worships God. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Job did not curse God, so Satan strikes him again, this time his very flesh. And so Job was covered in boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. If you don't know what a boil is, it, it is a, a pus-filled sore that is very painful to the touch. And so again, you can imagine what this experience would be like for Job. He has just lost all of his possessions and his family, and now his very health has been taken from him. He then sits in ashes and scrapes off all those boils that he can. And then his wife appears to him. And you would think that she would offer him comfort, that she would pray with him or tell him that God is on his side. No, instead, she says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job has truly hit the bottom of life's sufferings. He's lost his family, he's lost his possessions, he's lost his health, and the one person that is supposed to be in his corner, encouraging him to trust in the Lord, tells him to curse God and die. This is where we find ourselves. This is the backdrop of chapter 14 of the book of Job. And as stated already, this is in the midst of a lengthy conversation that Job has with three of his friends who to summarize their main point, Job has committed some sin that God is punishing Job for. For Job's friends, there is no suffering that is not directly related to someone's personal sin. That should sound somewhat familiar because that's a tenet of legalism. You suffer because you've committed some sin. Because if you had done what is right, things would be well with you. The only people who suffer are the wicked. The wicked suffer and the righteous prosper, so the logic goes. 
But one of the things we'll see in the life of Job is that this sequence is actually not how life goes. That God's dealings with his people are more complex than that. And so Job starts off this section by stating quite plainly that the few days we have on this earth are full of trouble. Again, a reality that everyone upon the face of the planet, from the young to the old, from the black to the white, however you vote along party lines, can agree upon. This life is hard. It has trials. It has hardships. And there are sufferings. And so Job states in the very beginning, a man is born of woman and is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone, that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. A truth we must remember and a truth that we must teach to our children. The Bible is explicitly clear that our days are numbered. Our time upon this earth is quick. Our days are few. The Bible oftentimes describes life as a mist. As soon as you try to get a handful of it, it is gone. You were born one day, and the next, you're on your deathbed. But Job adds something else here, that the days are also full of trouble. So not only are our days few on the earth, those few days are also filled with trouble. Christians, we should not be surprised when hardship comes our way. As Job says, Shall we accept good and not ill? Because we live in a fallen world, the few days that we have in this life are full of trouble. As we saw in chapters one and two, we are sinned against by those around us. Natural disasters cause us pain and suffering. And the adversary himself works to do us harm. Further, our lives, which many of you can attest, I am sure, are full of trouble, not just in that uncomfortable things happen, but we ourselves are full of trouble. So not only does trouble come our way, but our lives are restless. How many of us are vexed by worry, stressed due to uncertainty, filled with doubt, busy with hurry, Worried about our children, worried about our friends, worried about our parents, worried about shaping our lives in such a way that we experience the least amount of discomfort we possibly can. It is in our very nature to fret, to distrust the one who himself is trustworthy. As Job says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Our natures are utterly corrupt. How can we be made clean again? How can we be set free from the things that worry us, 
the things that vex us, the things that cause us trouble. And so we have seen what Job thinks about life on this earth for man. But beginning in verse seven, we see the inspired thoughts of Job concerning death. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake, a river wastes away and dries up. So a man lies down and rises again, till the, so a man does not lie down and does not rise again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. This area, we can be particularly foolish from the young to the old. We often forget the wisdom of Job, again, that our days are numbered and that death comes for us all at some point. And unlike the tree that has hope of revival after being cut down, when a man goes to the grave, his days are done. A man, when he dies, has no hope of returning to this life. His soul leaves his body, and he will not see this life again. Just as the waters dry up, soak into the ground, and remain hidden, so too the man who goes to the grave shall not rise again. Each and every night, we lay down to sleep, and we rise the next morning. It is not this way with death. The finality of death is a reality we must all grapple with, which leads one to declare how bleak is our plight here on the earth. When we think about life, when we think about the experiences that, that we have, the hardships, the suffering, the trial in this life, and then at the end of our few days that are filled with trouble and hardship, we have death as well. I mean, we might be led to declare with Job in chapter three that we would actually curse the day of our birth, that we had never seen any of this hardship, any of the trouble, any of the suffering that is accompanied in the human life. But there is hope. Surely Job had this hope in mind. Later on, he says in chapter 19, verse 25, he says, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Insert here the meaning of Christmas. Our redeemer lives. That we do not have a God who is in the grave, but one who is raised from the grave. In the greater narrative of Job, we see that contrary to much of what we think of the Old Testament, God's dealings with his people are more complex than just you sin and get punished. God's ways are more complex than deed, consequence, sequence. You do this thing, you get this result. You work hard and it always works out. You pray more and you get what you want. The mystery that Job discovers in his own life is that he hopes in God's sovereignty. 
Job, though dealing with the sufferings of this life, states in chapter 23, verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job trusts and believes that his trials will not last indefinitely, that the face of Yahweh will shine upon him once again, that the Lord is good and his gracious providence is for our good. Job understands that the way of the Christian is the way of the cross. Job learned more about God in his suffering than he ever could have in comfort. So it is with us as well. God does not leave us in our suffering. He is an ever-present help and strength to us. Further, the grave is not the demise of the Christian. Death is but an entry point into glory. The blood of Christ covers over all the transgressions of believers. The believer has nothing to fear in death. Rather, the believer should rejoice in death. Because when the believer dies, he leaves this world that is full of trouble and trial and suffering and strife and enters into the presence of God forever. Again, it is hard for us to wrap our minds around this idea of eternity. So I, to, to help kind of illustrate this, just think of an Avengers movie that is three hours long, or maybe don't if you don't like those. But eternity is like a never-ending movie. Except there is no villain to face. There is no great enemy to conquer. There is no more hardship to be experienced. There is no more suffering. The work of your hands will produce fruit. No longer will the curse applied to the man and applied to the woman be in effect. Again, when we think about Genesis chapter 3, the curse of the man was that you would work by the sweat of your brow. Remember that Adam in the garden, he did work. But when he worked, it always yielded a harvest. That is unlike our lives. Oftentimes we work and we don't get the intended result. But in eternity... Our work will always yield a harvest. Again, think, think about this as we're entering into Advent season. The glories of heaven. That there will be no more sadness. There will be no more reason to mourn. There will be no more reason to cry. The wrestlings that you have with your own sin will be no more. The wrestlings that you have with other people sinning against you will be no more. The wrestlings that you have against the adversary who works against you will be no more. And finally, the last enemy of all, there will be no more death. There will be no more sad goodbyes to your loved ones. 
There will be no more gatherings saying, I will see them again, for we shall all be in the presence of God. As we go into this Advent season, let us reflect on these realities. Advent, this is what we were preparing for as we look to Christmas, the first coming of our Savior, our Redeemer who has taken away our sin. This season is about light coming into darkness. This season is about hope in the world. This season is about peace and glad tidings from the Lord. The season is about the great I am coming to earth to redeem us back to our God. Anyone who has watched a TV during this season sees the numerous advertisements, excuse me, and commercials for different products and merchandise going on sale. I think we can all agree that Christmas and the broader culture is certainly not about Jesus, but has been commercialized. We see pictures of the picture-perfect family enjoying one another with no quarrels at the table, Santa Claus enjoying Mama's cookies, the best romantic comedies from Hallmark. This season for many in the West is about the gifts, the presents, the time away from work or school, and year after year, people put their ultimate, ultimate hope in this short time for relief from life's hardships. Do we? Do we look at this time as a time to be at peace? And I'm not saying you shouldn't expect this time to be a time of peace, but the question is, where are you ultimately looking for that peace? This is a question that we must ask ourselves. Am I training myself, my friends, my family, to celebrate the coming of the Savior? Or has this time become about the expectant arrival of something else? A telling sign is what we get most excited about. What our kids spend most of the time talking about during this season. Is it the presents? The gifts? Do you spend most of your time talking about the time off work you're about to get? Do your uh, school-age kids spend most of their time being excited and celebrating not being in school? All these things are, are great things. But are these things where you're putting your ultimate hope? May it be that this year and years to come, we train ourselves to long for something greater, to long for and celebrate the arrival of our Savior as we await his second advent to take all believers into glory. So as we prepare to receive gifts, because surely you will, to receive money and presents, let us remember to look up. Let us remember that in the midst of all these great things that we enjoy, that we do not forget the one who has given us so many undeserved blessings. Let us not forget that the greatest gift comes not in the form of material wealth nor earthly comforts, but in the form of little baby laid in a manger.
this is the greatest gift that mankind has ever been given. It's not a new, it's not a raise. It's not your dream house. It's not your dream car. It's not your children performing well in all their different activities. The greatest gift that has ever been given to mankind came in the form of a baby who was laid in a manger. As we go into this Advent season, let us reflect on this glory that the creator of the universe, the one who created all things seen and unseen, the one who transcends time and space, the one who has no beginning and no end, came in the form of a baby. He came on your behalf. He lived the life that you yourself could not live. He died the death that you rightly deserve and then was raised again on the third day so that you would be redeemed back to your God so that you may have hope in this life that the trials will not last forever, that you could have hope in the life to come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for this time. This time that we have to step away from the duties in which we have, to spend time reflecting on your goodness, on all the things that you've given us that we oftentimes do not give thanks for. Lord, we pray this Advent season that our mind's attention and our heart's affection would not just be on earthly things, but that by the power of your spirit, we would delight in the reason why we celebrate this season, that you came in the form of a baby, that you took on human flesh so that you could live a life experiencing all of the suffering and the hardship that we ourselves endure, but perfectly, righteously. And then you would go to the cross on our behalf to be crucified for our sins, died and buried, but then on the third day you would rise again so that we may be made right with you. God, we pray that this season we would reflect upon this, that we would delight in you, that we'd find our ultimate hope in what you have done for us and who you are.